you and I are called. We are called to faith. We are called to prayer. We are called to wait patiently on the Lord. But I hope that we are all becoming intimately and actively aware, especially in this year in which the Lord has spoken to us at PCF and said it's a year of patience, that waiting patiently on the Lord is not sitting and doing nothing. I tell you, I've been watching a program recently that about 45 years ago was sort of the pinnacle of television, an import from the UK, a program that preceded what became so popular about a decade ago, Downton Abbey. But 45 years ago, Upstairs, Downstairs was a program that won all the awards and gained so much attention and actually became one of the, uh, the, the pearls and the crown, if you will, of PBS. And it's about servants living in Edwardian England, that is, at the turn of the last century. Servants who were in this very hierarchical society where the rich were rich and the poor were poor and there was a lot of class tension and economic tension. Now, does that begin to seem to you a little bit like the kind of society that we've been talking about in this series of studying in James? People who had resentments and difficulties because of their lack of resource. People who behaved um, with imperiousness and insensitivity to others because of their great amassed of resource and tension in society because of it. But one thing I've learned in watching this program, at least all the more, is that there is something quite admirable. Whatever one might have to say about the, the situation of society, and at the very least we can say, in that time as in ours, there were many inequities. And no doubt the Lord was grieved by the way that people treat one another at all times in this wicked era in which you and I live, and that is the era of humanity. But nevertheless, there's something admirable about people so dedicated to another and to the notion of service that they realize that to wait patiently is not to be inactive, but to be constantly prepared, constantly ready for the bell to ring. And now, it's possible to do that because you have no choice. You're living in a situation in which you are enslaved in that, and that would be a grievous wrong. It's possible to do it because one is employed in it. In other words, you're doing it for a wage. But you and I do not serve the Lord because we have no other choice. We have no better choice. That is true. Dipupa. <laughs> it is true. But it's not because we have no other choice. And it is not so that we can gain something from him because there is nothing in him that has not already been given to us if indeed we are in him. James said in his first chapter that every good and perfect gift comes from where? From God. It comes down from the Father of lights, not up from the roots of wickedness in this old world and not from those places of evil desire and fleshly appetite that we talked about last week in James chapter 4 that caused so much dissension among people and among nations. The greed that says, what you have, we will have. And if you will not give what we say is ours, we will take by force what may very well be yours. And you hear it in the news and see it in the world today. That is not from God. That is from the evil one. And 
It is how the evil one appeals to the very appetites that you and I must acknowledge if we will be mature are in us in the flesh, but must be put to death in us by the Spirit. Because the Spirit is the Spirit of God in whom there is no shadow of turning. He is consistent. He is constant. He is righteous. He is victorious. And he is coming. He is coming back. You look at the cover of your bulletin today. There's a clock on there. Seemed to me a fitting symbol, not only because of the fact that we wanted to talk about changes to times and things in times ahead, but also because today we are talking about James 5, 7. Wait patiently for the coming of the Lord. And over and over again, what the Lord calls us to consider is, when I come, what will I find? Jesus said that you and I are not going to know the exact day and hour in which the things which God has promised and foretold will come to pass. We don't know the exact day and hour, but he said you can and should know the seasons, the signs of the times. In our Bible study uh, up in Santa Clarita, we met this week on Thursday night, and we were studying together in Luke chapter 21, in which Jesus, in the very last days of his earthly life, when he knew that the clock was ticking for him towards that ultimate moment on the cross and the even grander moment of resurrection. But in his mind, he desired to prepare his people for what was even beyond those things. The destruction of Jerusalem, which would occur under Rome, A.D. 70, some 35 to 40 years after those times when Jesus was speaking. But also the times to come even beyond that. When there would be wars and rumors of wars when there would be plagues and disease, when there would be crisis in the ecology of the earth and there would be signs in the heavenlies. It doesn't take much imagination to look around us right now and sense the signs of the times and know the season. But let me also say, as we've been talking about in this series, that for 2,000 years, Anyone who has carefully followed the Lord and honestly been aligned with the body has been aware that we have been living for 2,000 years in the last days. Paul talked about it as that. Peter talked about it as that. John, the apostle, talked about it that way. Jesus made it clear. And that's because from the time that Jesus Christ came to proclaim the kingdom, the kingdom has been coming by force, and those who recognize the power of God have been empowered to lay hold of it and to apply it in their lives because of the grace of God and the promise of God and the warning of God that says, all those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But anyone who denies me, says Jesus, in front of humanity, my Father will deny them. When he comes, Jesus will make this judgment. So you and I are living in the moments between when Jesus came before and when Jesus comes again. And I call them moments without any mistake because 2,000 years is but moments in the mind and hand of God. Now you might say, well, it's not to me. It's a long time. 
I remember when I was a boy, you know I had three older brothers. One of them was close enough in my age that in our household we received similar chores. Everyone in our household when I was growing up had chores. It was a routine part of the way that we lived our lives. Your household's probably the same. One of the, I don't, I was gonna say one of the chores I didn't like. I don't think there were any chores that I did like, to tell you the truth. I don't think there were any that I was particularly pleased with. Maybe feeding the dog or something. Depends on when you had to do it. But one that I maybe particularly wasn't keen on was folding the laundry. I remember that my mother would go out to be shopping or to spend the day doing, she actually worked, my mother, and so sometimes she had to be in an office or she worked in a store for some years. So whatever the, the cause was that would occasion her to be gone for the afternoon, she would say, I'm going to be back by five or whatever, and I want that laundry done, and I want the dishes to be cleaned and the kitchen to look good. And, you, you know, it would be 11 a.m. in the morning or 12 on a Saturday, and you'd think, that's a long time. No problem. And when she would leave, I remember my brother and I would always say, well, we could do it now. But do you think we ever did? No. Because why do something now that can be put off until later? You've got plenty of time, right? And then that old clock would be tick, tick, ticking. And after we'd been outside playing or we went and visited friends or we ate or we watched TV and watched TV and watched some more TV. There wasn't even anything good on TV and we were watching the TV. Then what would we hear? The car coming up. Now we lived on the top of a hill and it was about two acres from the bottom of the hill to the top, but our dog would go wild as soon as he started to hear a car. And we knew, I don't know how this is, but we knew the precise tone, the exact scale of the engine of our mom's car. It's coming up there, do the laundry now! You know, you'd start folding it feverishly. Can we possibly, in the two minutes that it's gonna take her to get up the drive and park outside, get the laundry done, get all the dishes put away, he'd be in the kitchen doing that. Where does this go? I don't know, I'm folding this thing. What even is this? I don't even know who's. But always we would think, why didn't we do it earlier? Because we had time. There's a funny thing about time. It's kind of like money. No matter how much you have of it, it is finite. It comes to an end. No matter how long, no matter how much, it comes to an end. And whenever it does, there's that feeling. I don't know if you can relate to this. Is that it? wait a minute, where did it go? How many times do we say, where did the time go? <laughs> How many times do we look at the bank account and go, where did the money go? Who's spending all this money? Now, I make these comments lightheartedly, but I want to call you to the throne of God this morning. The great white throne of the Lord, massive, and the mighty living God seated upon it. And in him, there is perfect sight. There is nothing that he does not know. There is nothing that he does not see. There is nothing not only that you and I have done, but also that we've said, every little idle word, as Jesus put it, that we have spoken. But what else have we learned 
even recently in this series been reminded of. Everything in our heart, every impulse and intention, every desire, evil or worthy. Yes, he also knows every wrong that's been done to you and every disadvantage. And aren't those the things that we trot out whenever we're in that point? My mom coming in and saying, why isn't this laundry done? Well, see, the dryer took longer. And maybe it did, but of course that was still three hours ago, right? Which she would say, well, why wouldn't you, you know, how long could it possibly have taken? Well, a phone call came in. We always have our excuses, right? And what the Lord says is, people will still try to bring those before him. Well, don't you know what we did in your name and the good things that we did and, and how we said this and said that? But the Lord sees through all of that. And even if some of that is true, some good things that we did, some bad things that disadvantaged us, the Lord's not fooled by any of that. The Lord will say, I'm not talking to you about your brother or your sister or your father or mother. I'm talking to you about you. Not just what you did and what you said, but what you felt and what you thought. Now that's coming. But the way to reckon with it is to come to him now. But if we think in coming to him now that we're going to short-circuit that very necessary process of becoming aware of why we need him and why we ought to be grateful for his mercy, then we will hold his grace cheaply. Because we'll think, well, of course God loves me. After all, he's the father and he should love me. But when we come before him as judge, and it's right that we should come before him as judge because he is judge then we will recognize, if we are honest, that we have nothing to commend ourselves in his sight. We have no worthiness to offer, nor is there any legitimate defense. You'll never have a more compassionate, considerate, understanding judge, but you will also never stand before a more righteous judge who can more truly say that in him there is no evil, no room for lying, no room for lusting, no room for greed, no place for unrighteousness, no place for wickedness to hide, no way for wickedness to remain. He's coming, but he's here. In theological circles, it doesn't sound like a very fancy phrase, but it usually gets referred to this way, already and not yet. The Lord has already come. But not everything that the Lord has said is coming has yet come. Yet enough has been shown to us that you and I ought to know that even if we don't know the exact day and hour, we should look up and see the signs of the times. It is time to ready ourselves to meet the Lord. And if we are going to do that, we ought to know what is it that the Lord has said, before I get back, this must be done. Because if he's coming on the clouds of glory, it's too late to be running around the house trying to get everything fixed. And even if he's not coming on the clouds of glory yet, you don't know when he is, and you don't know what's around the corner. So in order to wait patiently on the Lord, like good servants, like good children, 
like people who are grateful for the goodness of God shown to us, we need to consider what does he most want us to do? And James has written a letter that makes it plain as day. First of all, love God. Don't just say you love him, really love him. And if you would really love him, show your love by loving one another. And love in such a way that your heart is transformed by his presence, that your words are considered and weighed already in advance so that you would tame your tongue so that it wouldn't get the best of you or maybe the worst of you. And also, not to be greedy for what you can gain and get, but instead recognize that in the Lord you have everything you need. You can look at plenty of rich people, and James is not saying rich people are bad. What he's saying is the riches of the world cannot enrich your soul, but they can lay claim to it. And if you get all entangled in worldly wealth so that that's what you're all about, there is something very bad to come for you. But if you recognize that even if you don't have much in this world, you have the Lord of this this eternity, this creation, who has said to you, I will reward you for your faithfulness in me, then that is enough and more than enough. So love one another and, what did Jesus say? Be my witnesses. Tell people about me. Share who I am, not just in what you say, but in what you do, in who you are. So it requires a transformation, and that is what waiting patiently on the Lord is about. It is about reading and meditating on the word, digesting it, and also confessing it. It is about worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth, in connection with the body. It is about doing good in the power of the Lord, not because you're trying to earn something, but because the goodness of God is flowing out of you naturally because the presence of God is living in you supernaturally. And so the good works that God prepared for us in advance to do, as Paul put it in Ephesians 2.10, they are demonstrated as a witness to the goodness of God, not to ourselves, but to him, so that we can be his masterpiece. We can be the poem that he declares to the world, the song of praise that he shows, and the hand of help to people in need. The hand of healing to people who are sick. The power of deliverance to those who are bound by the unrighteousness of the evil one. Today, we are going to be looking at the final chapter of James 5, but as you can tell, I am also speaking in a culminating way because since it is the final chapter and the end of this series, I want us to think about the entire book that we've been studying in a way in which we will be prepared to apply it and wait patiently on the Lord. So we're going to look at the text together. We're also going to make a quick review of things we've already learned. We're going to try and package this in a way in which you and I can take it forward and hopefully grow in the grace and the goodness of God in the practical application of our living, just as James has desired, just as the Lord himself desires. In doing so, it seems to me that I should underscore yet one more point that we've already talked about, that everyone is talking about, that we will be talking about no doubt more as time goes forward, and it is the unrest in Ukraine and the, uh, uh, the, the act of uh, really uh, stunning aggression on the part of the Russian leadership. And I say that with no ill will towards the Russian people, with no lack of appreciation for the, the legacy of the country of Russia, um, but with a very sober sense of grief over these actions that really put the entire international peace at risk. And 
which have obviously already cost so much in terms of the life and peace of the nation of Ukraine. It is good and right that you and I should pray strongly about this. And many of you have contacted me this week about the events. And I I know that there's deep feelings of response to what is occurring. And uh, I understand and sympathize with many of those feelings. I don't feel that the pulpit is precisely the place for me to lay out some kind of political or even militaristic response to what's going on. But I do recognize that this is one of those moments where you can really sense that the winds of the world could turn in a variety of directions. And some of them are very bleak. And maybe at the very least right now, none of them seem very good, even the best case scenarios. But don't lose heart or give up hope that righteousness can be realized in this world. There's two things that we need to hold into tension, balance together. And I think this is more than just a statement about what's going on in Ukraine. It's also a statement about what we see going on in the word in the letter of James, which is there are trials that occur. And we might look at those trials and say, where is God? Where is righteousness? And we might begin to respond to them according to the kind of natural and understandable, but nevertheless, ultimately fleshly sort of response. Well, we need to make it right because I know what's right and I'm going to advocate for what's right. Well, let your conscience be guided by the Lord and speak according to your conscience. I praise God that we do still live in a country in which speech is free, at least That's the saying, and so I believe in living according to that way, but remember also what James has taught us. Make sure that you have weighed your speech on the scales of the Lord. In any case, what James said is, when you see trials and sufferings, respond to it with joy. Now, this is not to be misunderstood. There is no way in which I want to be flippant about something which has already cost innocent lives. Some of you may have read news stories about some of the loss of life that's occurred, and it, uh, it is insufficient but obvious to say that it breaks the heart. So I do not mean to make light of that to any degree, but recognize that when James was talking to the early church, he wasn't talking about people cutting you off in traffic either. He was talking about people cutting off your head. He was talking about life and death, blood situations. He was talking about people who were losing their livelihood and were going to starve to death under the the cruelty of oppressive wealth uh, masters, wealthy masters. So James was not talking about light and easy things either. And it's necessary for you and I to recognize that when the Lord says, because it's the Lord that speaks through Scripture, count it all joy, he's not, you know, twirling a parasol with rose-colored glasses and saying, count it all joy. It's just as lovely as a Disney cartoon. He's saying, see through that and beyond that, recognizing that the wrongs of this world, as wrong as they are, and indeed they are wrong, will have to be accounted for. And in fact, have been accounted for on the cross. 
And that's what we count joy. That is precisely the power by which Jesus went to the cross, despising the horror of what was represented by the cross. Recognize that what is meant in that statement is not that Jesus was afraid to suffer, but that he was deeply, deeply in anguish over sin and the wrath of God that is drawn by it. And yet, though he despises the evil, he is willing to suffer the curse and the cost for the joy set before him. And that joy is that the Lord comes to make all things right and all things new and to draw his own to himself. So no matter what is going on in the world around us, we ought to be concerned, we ought to be involved, we ought to speak out as wisdom, good conscience, the scriptures and the spirit would lead us, but we must also remember, though the end is coming, this is not yet the end. And even with all things to pass away, the word of the Lord will not pass away. Let the mountains fall into the roaring seas. Let the skies be rolled up as a scroll. And the Lord says such things will happen. And yet that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is the glory of Christ and his people forever together in righteousness and peace. So because of that, we thank the Lord that he has entrusted his people with the role of waiting patiently. And in times like that, this, it means praying, not losing sight, not losing heart, not losing hope, not giving up, and not failing to do the good that God has called us and equipped us to do, nor failing to resist the devil as we submit to God, as we draw close to him and realize he is drawn close to us. So, Let's remind ourselves of some basic facts about James as we come to the conclusion of this series. I want you and I to move forward having learned something from this series. Let's not have it be like a day at the beach. The waves wash over you and then later you go and wash off the sand and the sea and it's all forgotten. No. Let something of this series take root in you. Not my teaching, but the word of the Lord and the context in which it was given. That context is there was an early church leader, probably, as tradition states, a brother of, J of Jesus named James, who we know as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, who was known as James the Just. He had a heart for the disadvantaged, for the poor, and he was willing to speak out against unrighteous and wickedness in leadership. But he also was a man of order and leadership himself. This letter was written in the early days of the church, in the middle of that first century. In fact, it may even be the very first of the New Testament books written. It's almost certainly one of the first. It is very similar in style, in fact, probably because of that, because of its earliness, because of James' Jewishness, and because of the value of God's word, very consistent with the Old Testament wisdom literature, such as Ecclesiastes, and the book of Proverbs, and the Song of Psalms. But it's also highly consistent, even structured um, in a sort of mirrored fashion with Jesus' teachings, especially his moral teachings in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon in the Plain that you find in Matthew 5 through 7 in Luke chapter 6. 
It's focused, as Jesus' teachings in those places were focused, on very daily practical considerations. How do you deal with money? How do you deal with people? How do you say the right thing and not say the wrong thing? How do you show God that you love him and not just say that you love him? How can you day in and day out deal with the trials, temptations, and troubles of this world in a way that is faithful, patient, gracious, and wise? What do you do when you're sick? What do you do when you've sinned? What do you do when you have a problem? What do you do when you don't know what to do? If any of you lacks wisdom, says James, ask of God. And he is no respecter of persons. He gives it liberally to whoever asks, but ask in faith. So James is writing to believers in that era who were largely of Jewish origin like himself because for the most part at that time, the church had not spread much beyond the Messianic Jews of the early church. However, there were Gentile people coming in as well, and James no doubt had those people in mind. You only have to look at Acts chapter 15 to know that James fully endorsed officially as a policy of the church that it was not just a faith for Jewish people, but for Gentile people, for all people. Nevertheless, James writes in a way in which these people that he knows in the early church, many of whom have been scattered by persecution, many of whom are dealing with crushing poverty, many of whom are new to Christianity, they are new to the understanding of the teachings of Jesus as Messiah, and they are facing intense persecution precisely because of their faith. He wants to give them the encouragement and the wisdom that he knows the word has. So he calls them, and the Spirit through him calls us, to pursue spiritual maturity, unity in the body, justice without favoritism to the rich or the influential, without any, um, uh, any kind of uh, unfairness shown to the poor, but as we saw when we looked at this in the Old Testament scriptures as well, without showing favoritism to the poor either, but instead trying to look discerningly at the situation and deal graciously with all people and patiently persevering in faith. So as we come to the fifth chapter, let's review in our minds sort of the bullet points of major theme in each chapter. Now remember, when James wrote this, he was writing not chapter by chapter. The chapters came later. The material was divided into chapters later. But I'm one of those who feels that the Holy Spirit did not inspire his word and leave it. He lives within it. And so these traditions, such as the chapterfication of the scripture, I believe the Lord was at work in that as well. And what you can see as you look chapter by chapter at James is despite the reputation of this letter as being somewhat wandering, maybe you think my sermon is that way too, there is a method to this quote-unquote madness. There is actually a structure to be discerned here. First of all, James wants to make it quite clear that in the midst of any challenge, there is good reason for joy, but it's only going to be realized by single-minded faith. Single-minded faith in God, in which you are not being led astray by the, the supposed wonders and marvels and riches of the world, in which you face trials and tests with that single-minded faith in order to let it produce its perfect work of patience and maturity. In chapter 2, he goes further into making it clear that we are not to show favoritism, especially to the wealthy, which would have been typical of the era, to think that people who had more money were blessed by God. Now, there's nothing wrong with recognizing that God gives generously. And indeed, throughout the Bible, God has made people wealthy. Abraham was wealthy, and so were all the patriarchs. 
David, the king, was wealthy. And actually, there is no entity, no person, we can say, wealthier than God. He doesn't just own the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the hills. He made them. He owns all the worlds and all the cosmos. God is rich. So there's nothing wrong with richness. But the love of money is a root of many, many evils. God is the greatest treasure. If you and I are more enthralled by worldly treasures than by God, then we have come under the snare of a very dangerous idol. Nevertheless, if we do not show preference to people on the basis of how much they have or lack, but show grace and help to people, and especially those who need it the most, then we will be acting as God desires us to act. Faith in God produces that kind of behavior. It produces the righteous works through us that he grants to us to do by his merciful grace and by his infilling spirit. One of the things that the spirit enables us to do is something that James says no one can do naturally, which is tame the tongue. You can train a dog, you can train a horse, you can even ride a horse or, or fight a bull, but who can tame the tongue? A little thing like the rudder of a ship, but it can steer you right over the waterfalls. A little thing like the spark of an ember, but it can set a whole forest on fire. If anyone wants to come and teach others, which is such a popular preoccupation in these days, James says, watch out. Not everybody should be a teacher. Hardly anybody can control their tongue. But if you could control your tongue, you could have self-control. And it's the spirit that enables us to tame our tongue and to steer our speech away from cursing and into blessing. Now then, one way to do that is to come before the Lord. Remember what I said at the beginning? Come to the altar. Come to the judgment seat. Come to the Lord. Come with humility. Don't come proudly because God resists and rejects the proud because they resist and reject him. And when they do so, what they are doing is not only rejecting God, but they are snuggling up with Satan who desires to get them close as any lion does to get his prey close because he's looking for whom he can devour. Remember the old story of the gingerbread man that went running away and tried to get across the river and the wolf said, right on my back, I'll get you there. He did get him there in his belly because as soon as he got the gingerbread man close enough, he was dinner. Satan wants to consume you and he'll come to you as the friend that says, let me get you where you're going. What do you want? I'll give it to you. But James chapter 4 says, watch out about what you want. That's where division and strife comes from. That's where ensnarement in, in the skills of Satan come. And so instead, resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Submit yourself to God. And then finally, in James chapter 5, there's going to be sort of three final sections that talk about the problem that the wicked rich face that, that describe the admonition to the faithful flock and that remind us of the coming of the Lord and how we are to wait patiently for him with prayer. Prayer that is powerful, that is active, that is engaged, that is communal. So let's look at these things. In the final chapter, James comes to speak once again about the problem of relying too much on wealth. 
and he specifically speaks to people who think that their wealth insulates them from any responsibility to God or that it somehow commends them in the, in the world. And they are acting with impunity against poorer people who are serving them because they think, who can stop me? And James says, the Lord sees, the Lord knows, and you will have to answer to the Lord. So you would be wise to reckon with it now and change your ways. How about for the faithful people? And here, he's speaking to the faithful flock. Whether you're rich or you're poor, you can be unfaithful or faithful in your circumstances. And so if you are going to be faithful, then you must be waitful. You must be waiting on the Lord patiently, not doing nothing, but attentive, looking. Where is the master calling me to serve? How and what does he want me to do? And if there's suffering that comes in the, in the, in the doing of that, then endure that suffering patiently. And if in the process you find yourself sick or you find yourself in the midst of circumstances that seem to overwhelm you and you need help because there is something going on as a crisis in the land, like a drought, or there's a crisis in your body, like sickness, or there's a crisis in the church, like people sinning or people in dispute, then the response is pray, pray, pray. Come together and pray. Faith-filled, patient prayer, anointed prayer with the laying on of hands and the anointing of oil, which are both symbolic and even sacramental of the arrival of the Spirit into the situation, the anointing of the Holy Spirit to break the bonds, to bring healing, to bring righteousness. Above all, James exhorts us to be patient and stand firm because Jesus is coming you know, this is why I come back to this again and again and say, if you want to excise that out of the faith, if you want to say, I like the Christian stuff, but I don't like this bit about Jesus coming back because it just seems a little bit over the edge to me. It, it, it goes a little bit too far into that kind of religious person's a little bit crazy. And after all, we've all probably seen I'm not trying to disparage anybody who goes out and carries the gospel, but haven't you ever seen somebody sharing the gospel where you felt like, I'm not sure that's the gospel? Or it sounds kind of like the gospel, but there's something else in the spirit here. Somebody a little bit too wild. I don't mean in their enthusiasm. I mean they don't seem to have the spirit of self-control. They don't seem to have a tamed tongue. I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the Lord causing you to be a public spectacle. When John the Baptist was out in the wilderness baptizing people, people did look at him, especially among the establishment, as this wild-haired, crazy-eyed guy. In fact, some people looked at Jesus that way. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that the Lord is not calling us to lose our minds, but rather to submit them. Instead of submitting them to the world to resist being conformed to the world and instead to have our minds and our whole beings transformed by submitting them to God. And when we do that, we'll recognize that there's no way that you can love the Lord and pay attention to what he is saying and be ready to do what he is doing if you want to ignore the fact that he said, I'm coming back. To go back to my paltry illustration at the beginning, it would be like me saying, I don't need to do any of that laundry. Mom's never coming back which sort of misses the whole point. I want her to come back because I love her. And as a child in her house, she and my father are caring for me. 
I want to please her because I love her. And also, it's better to do the laundry in your house than not. The Lord is coming back and there's a lot of dirty laundry in the world. Jesus said, I'm going to air it all. And in the book of Revelation, he said, some of you have got some pretty dirty clothes. And if you were smart, you'd come to me now because I have laundry soap better than Tide. Better than all, better than cheer, whatever's on the market. Bold. <laughs> you want bold, come to Christ. He said, I will make it whiter than snow. But you don't want to come to me? Then you are still wrapped in the filthy rags of your unrighteousness. We want Jesus to come back because Jesus is the only one who can solve the problems of this world and your life. All right. I don't have time to go through all of the text with you. You're going to do some homework this week. Say, I'm willing to do homework. See, I was nice. I didn't make you say you would do it. I just said you're willing to do it. And if you're not willing to do it, you didn't say it, then at least you're being honest. But you could read James chapter 5. You could read it this afternoon. And when you do, I want you to look at these three sections. Now, I'm not going to read every verse with you, but I'm going to hop through them very fast as we come to the conclusion of this message. I want you to spend some time thinking about what they mean to you in your life. If you do that, the Lord will give you the wisdom to apply it in ways that are actually practical and powerful. And if you don't, then you can't blame God for the fact that you lack more of the spiritual richness that he wants to give you through his word. I think you'll do it because I know you wouldn't be here if you didn't love the Lord and love the word. I'm talking to the person next to you. James wants to make it really clear, if you think that you've got it all together, watch out. And if you've got a lot, you ought to recognize that God holds you accountable for what you do with it. And if you've been doing wrong with it, you ought to repent. That's really not different very much from what he said in the prior chapter, which is that we all need to repent. So what he's really doing here is speaking to people who don't think they need to because society has made it so that they're insulated from that sense. They feel like, well, what do I need? It's like the guy that we talked about last week from the parable of Jesus who said, I've got grain stored up in the silo for forever. But that very night he died and came before the Lord who said, I'm not impressed with the grain in your silo. I'm concerned with the words that were in your mouth and the thoughts that were in your heart, with who you are. And so James is saying, if you're rich and you think I'm rich, that makes me right, which was a common way of thinking in the world at that time. He said, then you need to weep and groan and moan and look at how you've been behaving because you've been cheating people out of their wages. You've been having them work for you and then not pay them or not pay them enough. And it's ill-gotten gain. It's ill-gotten treasure. And it's going to be evidence against you when the Lord comes. And if you're living in a life of luxury and you're just enjoying the luxuriousness of it and you hear something like James saying, count it all joy when you face trials and you think, trials? What trials? I've got it made in the shade. I've got it good. I'm going to kick my feet up and enjoy. James is saying, you're satisfying all your desires, but you care nothing for God's. 
And he is going to hold you accountable for it. You've condemned and killed innocent people who couldn't defend themselves or resist you. Again, a statement that sounds very applicable to the world scene today. So recognize anybody who's leading that kind of an assault is going to have to face this kind of a conviction. Pray that they would face it now and stop the assault. And I don't just mean nations, I mean companies, I mean people. And I don't just mean rich people, I mean people who feel that it's their right to take someone else's property or destroy it in the name of their cause. Pray that all people would come to the sensibility that James is describing here, in which we recognize that we need to consider God's will. In Luke chapter 6, once again, James, uh, excuse me, Jesus is making a teaching that's very similar to what James says. That God looks to the poor who are humbly recognizing their need, and he promises the kingdom to them. Now, you and I are poor in the eyes of God, if we will humbly recognize that ourselves. But you also ought to recognize, virtually everyone in this room, probably most people within the sound of my voice, you're wealthier than most human beings have ever been. You and I don't think of ourselves as rich, but many of you grew up in a place where you know poverty. Some of you grew up in it. Many of you saw it. But let me tell you something. Even the poor in this country are wealthier than many people who have lived in the thousands of years of human history that precede us. We all have something. Remember the widow who had very little, but Jesus rejoiced that she gave it all to God knowing that what she gave to God would also benefit even those who had less than her. You can be rich in God's eyes, and that's a righteous kind of richness. And he can give resource to you. If he knows you're not going to hold on to it, you're going to give it away. And then watch how much he wants to flow through you. Not so that you can live in luxury and indulge your own desires, but because you desire to give away what God gives to you because God has already given you the kingdom and you want to share it. But if you're holding on to riches and wealth, what sorrow awaits you, says Jesus, because the only happiness you have is happiness now. I would rather have eternal happiness than earthly wealth. I don't mean to say there's anything wrong with having money, and you need money in order to live. And God isn't asking you to live in the dirt and live without clothes. In fact, he's promising you exactly the opposite. You don't need to worry about clothes or where you'll live or what you eat. If you're serving me, I'll make sure you're receiving that. So God is not saying, I want you to have not enough. What God is saying is, I'm more than enough for you. Turn to God and trust. We're all the wealthy. James would have thought all of us were wealthy. We probably have more than James had in terms of material things. I'll bet that I own more clothes than James ever owned in his life. I bet that I have more food available to me than James would have had on an average day. I'll bet that I've traveled more of the world than James ever could have and slept in comfier beds and all those things. But I don't for a moment suppose that I'm any richer than James. In fact, I desire to be as rich in wisdom as he was, and yet more than that, he would say, desire the wisdom of God. All of us have done wrong and have a, a cause to repent of things. All of us are enticed by worldly riches and have a need to resist and reject that kind of reliance. All of us are prone 
to desire to please our own indulgences and our own appetites for luxury. And so James is saying, watch out for all of that. Don't live in a way in which that is what you are pursuing. Instead, reject that in order to lay hold of the riches of the kingdom. Wait patiently, like a farmer. Now, when a farmer plants their field, they're not waiting patiently thinking, I wonder if anything will grow. Because the seed is there. You know it's going to grow. You say, well, there's a lot of different things, right? You need to know the signs of the times. You need to watch the weather. On the other hand, a farmer doesn't say, well, there's seed in the ground and there's God in his heaven. And so, you know, I planted it. I'll be back in six months. Hope it produces. What kind of farmer is that? Instead, the farmer waits patiently. Is he doing nothing? Does the farmer's wife come and say, what are you doing today, Bill? I thought you were working that. Oh, I planted it and now I'm waiting patiently. No, waiting patiently is watering, weeding, and doing all the work in between that is appropriate for the season and then watching the season and saying, a harvest is coming, a harvest is coming. And Jesus said, look around, the harvest is here. So patiently pursue the harvest and pray to the Lord to send more workers for the harvest because you better be aware that the Lord is coming like a bumper crop. So look to the Lord, rely on his merciful tenderness and be careful what you say. Once again, James comes back to one of his favorite topics, tame the tongue. All you need to do is say that which God has given you to say. Jesus spoke similarly in Matthew chapter 5, once again, the Sermon on the Mount. Don't make vows. Don't say, by God this and by heaven that, because you're not in charge of God. You're not in charge of heaven. Instead, say yes, but mean it. Or say no and mean it. Be honest. Be simple in that sense. Because otherwise, you're probably giving place to something a little less than honest. How many politicians can say yes or no and simply mean it? There may be a few, but it's not a quality you often find in, in the leadership of our society. I wonder why that is. Jesus thought the same about the leaders in his society. All your fancy talk, why don't you just say yes and mean it? Or say no and do it. So live aware that Jesus is coming. Strengthen your hearts in that hope and tame your tongues in that awareness. Don't moan and complain. Oh, I don't have enough. Oh, life is so hard. Oh, God doesn't care. If you've got issues that you need to bring to the Lord, you can talk honestly with him, but be careful that you don't slip into the space of just being a complainer. You think, oh, I never say those things, but remember, God's listening to your heart. Are you? How often in your heart are you making a complaint? You think, well, it's not against God. It's just the circumstances. But don't you know that God is God of your circumstances? So consider him when you are thinking about your life. And be patient in waiting for him to do what he has said he will do. And patiently attend to what he is telling you he wants you to do. The words of the Lord, the prophets and the patriarchs, Give us that model. And in this, you and I can be people of simple speech and yet deep faith. Finally, what do you do 
when you are in need, pray. If you're suffering hardship, pray. If you're happy, then sing praise. That's right. Give vent to that. Give voice to that. God is not a God of dourness and heartlessness and hopelessness. He's the God of joy and all joy. So praise his name. Are you sick? Then get prayer. I'm stunned at how many people in the body resist coming forward for prayer when they have a physical need. Well, it's not that big of a deal. Well, is it a problem for you or not? Think of how often when people were presented to Jesus who had physical needs, one of the questions that he asked was what? Do you want to be well? You know why he asks that? Because some people don't. Well, it's not that big of a problem. Well, then shut up about it. If it's not that big of a problem, I guess it's not a problem. Then why aren't you out doing what you need to do? Well, it does bother me. Well, then why don't you get prayer for it? And then, you know, I asked the question last week, why would anybody not want what God wants? Maybe you're a little concerned about being in God's debt. People like to say they don't want to bother God with it, but usually there's something else behind that, which is maybe I don't really want to be concerned with what God might say to me about it because James presses to the point that maybe where your illness is coming from is a sin that needs to be confessed. Now, this is not to say that everyone that is ill is ill because of a direct connection to sin, but we are all sinners in the sense that we are saved only by God's grace, right? And what sin does is produce illness, disease, and death. The seed of sin produces the fruit of death. Whenever Jesus healed people, he would do it in combination with the statements like, your sins are forgiven. The healing was the result of the forgiving. And I think sometimes the reason that people are afraid to come forward for healing is because they're afraid to confess what needs forgiving. And so they would rather live with the illness than face the judgment. But you're going to face the judgment anyway. Why not face it now where you could be healed instead of later when it's too late? Not because God says, I've got healing, but I only give it to my favorites, but because he is healing. There is no healing away from him. It doesn't matter whether you're healed by a medicine or a doctor or through the direct prayer of someone, God is your healer. He uses medicine. He uses doctors. God bless doctors. God, we thank you for medication and medicines that help and heal, but don't think for a moment they would work at all if it were not for the God who made those people, who made those medicines in the very sense that he made the world and everything in it and everyone in it. So God is our healer. And confessing our sins is good for the soul and good for the body. Any church that wants to grow and wants to go forward in the empowerment of the Lord needs to be a church where you can confess your sins. Can we confess our sins to each other? If we are a church in which all these issues that James has been talking about have not been dealt with, a church that backbites and gossips, a church that hasn't tamed its tongue and has dissenting, disagreeing desires of the heart that fight against one another, how do you think that people are going to confess their sins in that environment? Let me assure you, they will not. And in fact, there will be little desire to. But if we are a family in which we forgive 
in which we understand, in which we recognize we all have things to confess quite often, and confession can liberate us because it invites the work of the Lord into us, then let me tell you something. You won't be able to keep people out of the doors. Not only that, you won't be keeping the kingdom behind the doors, be flowing out into the streets. Do you know how many people want to be well? Do you know how many people need to be healed? Do you know how many people want to be free? Now, if we are not among them, how can we carry it to them? And if we ourselves are sick, then will we pray for their healing? Now, actually, I've known people who in their sickness prayed for the healing of others, and it even happened. But you know what kind of people they were? They were people who counted it joy that God was allowing them to suffer whatever they had to suffer, however long it was, because they were waiting patiently, knowing whether I see it in this world or the next, God is my healer. So I'm not worried too much about my healing. And if there's something that needs to be confessed, I am living a life of confession and an open, submitted life. But I'm also believing by faith that when I pray for someone to be healed, God cares and answers those prayers. Not because of me, but because of who he is. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces results. Raise your hand if you've received results through the prayer of faithful people. I want to raise both hands. I've been physically healed by people's prayer. I've been delivered of demons by people's prayer. I have been delivered out of bondages by people's prayer. My eyes have been opened to my own sin or to my own failure or to my own confusion by the prayer of people. I think that the prayer of other people brought me to the Lord. Now it's the Lord himself who brought me, but their prayers are his spirit at work. Your prayers matter. Parents, pray for your kids. Spouses, pray for your spouse. Employers, pray for your employees and treat them well. Give them what they're due and more. I don't mean spoil them. I mean treasure them. And workers, pray for your managers and supervisors and treat them well. I don't mean kiss their behind. I mean serve their need, respect their role, honor their position. Remember, it's hard to be the person in charge. It's easy to say, if I was that one, I'd do it all right. But guess what? If you were that one, there'd be 10 people under you going, huh, I could do it better than them. Pray. And let the Lord use your prayers to produce powerful results. How powerful? It could change the land. A whole nation can have its fortunes shifted by the prayer of one person. Do you doubt it? Don't. The very revealed word of God says, Elijah is just like you. He was flesh and blood. He had to eat, he had to sleep, he went to the bathroom. He was a human being like you. There were times he was afraid, there were times he was confused, there were times he sinned. I don't know about him, I just trust that he's not sinless. Except because of Christ, like you and I, that's the sinlessness afforded to him. But he had faith and he prayed. The Lord said to him, I'm gonna judge this nation and I want them to know And so here's how they're going to know. There's going to be a drought, and the drought is going to produce famine. And famine, you know what famine often leads to? War. 
And so he said, I'm going to destabilize everything in this nation because everything in this nation has enriched itself in evil. They think they're wealthy, but I'm going to show them how needy they are. Pray for a drought. So Elijah prayed, let there be no rain. And there was no rain. For how long? Three and a half years. The very period of time that is traditionally in the synoptic gospels at the very least, shown to be the earthly ministry of Jesus. For three and a half years, something was going on that was supposed to make people go, wow, God is working. And maybe it's in a scary way. But God is real and real upset about the real sin of this land. God is very angry with this nation. That's not something you've probably ever heard me say before. But it's something that the Lord has put in my heart for a long time. And when I say it, I'm not standing outside of the nation and saying it. I'm saying he's angry with me and you, the people of this nation. You say, well, now, the Lord loves us. Yes, he does. And the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And the Lord is saying, this nation has gone astray. I'm not just talking about in terms of its its lapse of traditional kinds of faith. I mean the heart of the nation has gone wicked. And God says, I'm doing something about it. Now, when Elijah prayed, he was living in the land. He prayed for no rain over himself. Why? Because God told him to, and he trusted God. But he didn't do it because God hated the nation. God did it because he loved his people and wanted them to repent. And after three and a half years, God said, the time has come, pray for rain, and now I'm gonna send a storm. And Elijah prayed, and it happened. You and I can look at the nation and say, I want to see something change, I want something different, and the Lord says, If that's the case, let's talk about you. How about the change in you? You see, it's easy to say, well, the nation should do this, and our leaders should do this, and in the world we should do this, but God is not expecting you to change the world. What he wants to do is see if you're willing to let him change you. And when he does, then in you comes the wisdom to know how to pray. And when you pray... It can affect a whole nation. What about people who turn away from God? Here at the very end, we see that James is aware not everybody has remained faithful. And some people in the the process of this have been so discouraged by trials or so enticed by temptation or so deluded by the world or their own fleshly desires that they have fallen into the trap of worldliness and fleshliness again. He's talking about believers who have walked away from what is righteous to cozy up to the world. How should we respond to that? Pray. If someone among you wanders away from the truth 
you can bring them back through your prayer, through your spirit, through your outreach to them, speaking the truth in love, through your submittedness to the Lord and your earnest love for them. And you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back is bringing them back to salvation. Now, I know that this raises the question, well, are you saying that somebody can lose their salvation? That is not what I'm saying. I don't believe that's what the scripture here is saying. But I think what we should recognize here and in many instances in the New Testament is what the Lord says is there are people who may have an eternal place in his hand secured who nevertheless squander the opportunity of their time on earth because they are living as though they weren't saved. It's not that they're not saved, but they're living as if they weren't. And often what the scripture says, actually, you can find it on Isaiah, you can find it implied here when it says you're saving them from death. What is implied is that sometimes God allows people like that to die so that they don't go further in their sin. But it's not God's desire to cut short a life, but rather to use a life to bring more life to the world. And so I think what James is saying here is if you see somebody who knows the truth and is living uh, opposite from it, recognize even if their salvation is secure. And by the way, that may be an if. Because just because you think you're saved and just because you say you're saved doesn't mean you are saved. And if you're living that way, all of the scripture also says, you better be sure because why are you living that way then? That's not the way of salvation. Now see, speaking that way and praying that way and being honest about that with people can actually help turn people from their sin. So I'm coming to the conclusion of the message and that may be something that you and I need to consider. By the way, if you want to Look at the story of Elijah. You can find it in 1 Kings 16 and 17 that we've been talking about. And then in chapter 18 about the uh, arrival of the rain. So that, that whole story plays out over those chapters. I can't help but think of the man who asked God for wisdom as a leader and God gave it to him. That was Solomon, who also heard from the Lord in that same era of exchange when things like famine and drought and plague come. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, that means have the heart of repentance, and pray and seek my face, resist the devil and submit to me, and turn from their wicked ways and their unrighteous speech, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and restore the land. You notice those two things? They are inseparable. There's no restoration of the land without forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness has already been achieved. Repentance is available, but God doesn't force it down your throat. He says, I have the cure. Will you receive it from me? We are to call on God in faith to pray for the sick, for the sinful, for the nation, for the people, for God's signs and wonders, for revival and repentance. We've prayed this way already in today's service. But as I come to the conclusion of the message, I'm aware that the hour is late, but I feel that I cannot do justice to what the Lord intends today without calling people forward who would ask for prayer. If you are ill, if you have any kind of chronic pain or physical malady, or if there's someone that you love and is dear to you 
that isn't here today, or maybe even if they are, and they're not willing to come forward, but you would like to stand in their stead, I believe that prayer is worthy too. We would like to pray for you. I'm going to ask if members of the pastoral team would come forward as well. This passage says that elders of the church would lay hands and anoint with oil. These things are done not out of superstition, but out of the superfulness of the Spirit. The oil is a recognition that it is the Spirit of God who brings healing. The laying on of hands is our manifestation physically of our assurance that God desires to use prayers like ours to help you. And we are people who need prayer too. So if you have a physical need, if you have an emotional need, if you have a financial need, if you have something that is burdening you of sin, addiction, habit, wrong relationship, if you want to recommit yourself to the Lord or commit yourself to the Lord for the first time, if you are experiencing a season of joy in your life and you want to honor God by acknowledging that publicly and sealing it in the spirit of anointed prayer, I invite you to come forward. Anything that God would put on your heart that would lead you to come to the altar today, come and we're going to pray for you. And for those at home, even though you're not physically here, you may be gathered with someone who could pray for you. Or I can tell you this for certain, the spirit of the living God is with you. Jesus is there with you. If you desire, he will put his hand on you. Not a physical hand, but his hand in the spirit. And he is the healer. So I add my prayer to yours today. If you're committing yourself to him, if you're asking for healing, if you're confessing a sin, if you're asking for help, for wisdom, if you're rejoicing over a victory, if you're praying for revival in the land or peace in the world, my prayer, our prayers are with you today. For those in the congregation, I'm going to ask if you would reach your hands out. And if you can't hold your hands out for that long, it can be something as simple as just having a, a, a sort of, you know, gentle holding of the hand and offering of your prayer for those that are gathered here. We're going to pray. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. There is nothing more powerful than when the people of the Lord pray. This is our call, this is our charge, to be the people of the Lord who live by His Spirit and pray according to His Spirit and His Word. Though there are hard times in our world, there are good times ahead because there are people who are ready to hear about the Lord. There are people that have wandered away that are ready to be brought back. And there is change for the better in our world that God wants to bring about through your faithful living and through your prayer and giving. So give all of yourself to God who has given all of himself to you and move forward not with depression and despair and discouragement and fear, but with joy and hope and grace and peace and the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ who is very right now at the right hand of the Father and is certainly coming back. So be ready for him and share that word with the world. And in the meantime, may the grace and peace of our resurrected God, of our soon coming King, always gird you up in all the strength and hope of his truth and life and lead you forward according to his will in one spirit, in one accord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next time, church. God bless you.